0: Eight months ago, I stood in a delivery room at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston as Laura gave birth to our son, uh, Dane Jack. And I remember standing there, clumsily, trying to be helpful. But what do you do? She's doing all the hard work. I tr- held her hands, I certainly prayed, and I cheered, but the reality was my role was, was pretty Minimal. What I did most was behold, was stand in awe of the unfolding miracle before my eyes and just praise and thank and pray God's hand so evidently, so powerfully at work. Friends, we come here this morning standing in another kind of delivery room. In just a short time, we will send out a dear group of people here from our church and from our mother church in Cambridge, Hope Fellowship Church, and give birth to another church in Bedford. We stand in awe of the unfolding miracle before our eyes. Church planting is God's work so powerfully, so evidently working, yes, in and through human vessels, but it's his work. It's his power on display, and he gets all the glory for it. A question that would be wise and healthy for all of us to consider this morning is, how does a new church come into being? What is this work? I mean, think about it for a moment. Something that doesn't exist comes into existence. God is in the business of doing work like that from the beginning of creation and onward. He brings life out of nothing. Church birth, like childbirth, is a miracle. It showcases the power of God, the grace of God. Now, throughout history, God has proven himself faithful to bring local churches into being, We've been working through a series in the book of Acts that we began in September. We'll finish it late August. But here we come to a portion of scripture in Acts chapter 16 where we see God bringing a church into being, breathing life into the lungs of a new church. We find encouragement as we think about this work some 2,000 years ago as Scott and Kate and the team set out. April 3rd, to begin their work in Bedford. This is an encouragement for us and an opportunity for us to behold the power of God on display in church planting. This is the same passage we studied six and a half years ago to the date when we started as a local church just down the street at the dance studio. Very similar space to where you guys will gather next week. September 27th, 2015, This is the passage, Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 34. Let's turn there together in our Bibles. In the Bibles we've provided on our chairs, you can find that on page 925. Page 925, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 16. I'll read through verse 34. Acts 16, verses 11 through 34. Luke is the author of this. He's also the traveling companion of Paul. And Silas and Timothy in this very passage. So he's an eyewitness to these events. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods and was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. What we witness here in these verses is the birth of the church in Philippi. So Paul, on his second missionary journey, is traveling west throughout the Roman Empire, roughly forty-nine fifty A.D., and he and his ministry team, they're planting churches as they go. And we see him here entering the region, the Roman province of Macedonia, which is northern Greece, and a leading city, a prominent city, In Macedonia, that is Philippi. And so Acts 16, verses 11 through 34, tell the story of God working through Paul and company to transform lives in Philippi. One person, one encounter, one sharing of the gospel at a time. People's lives are being transformed and this will be the core, the nucleus of the church in Philippi, likely housed in the home of Lydia, whose heart is opened by God who then subsequently opens her home to others in gospel hospitality. This is the core of the church plant in Philippi. So we see here the anatomy of a church plant. And what I want to do is look at that anatomy with you. Look at the bones of this beginning of a church. What we see here is God's gospel delivered and then God's grace displayed. Those are the two bones that we want to see upon which everything else is built. God's gospel delivered, and then God's grace displayed. So last week, as we explored Acts 16, verses 1 through 10, we saw how God providentially guided Paul and his team west to this region of Macedonia. They couldn't go south into Asia. They couldn't go north into Bithynia. The Holy Spirit was steering them west. Why? Because the Spirit is fulfilling the words of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, said, you disciples, my followers, will be my witnesses in Judea and Sumeria and to the ends of the earth. Well, the ends of the earth, for those first century Christians, was west. Toward Rome, and that's where the Spirit is steering them. They don't go south, they don't go north, they go west toward Rome, and they stop on that westward journey here in Macedonia. Paul sees this vision of a man from Macedonia who says, Come and help us, come and help us. And we talked last week, this is not the kind of help that one neighbor would offer to another. Hey, help me hold the ladder so I can clean my gutters. This is a different kind of help. This is a spiritual help, a rescue kind of help, a salvation help. That's what the man of Macedonia is saying. Come help us spiritually. And as we will see, that help comes through the proclamation of the gospel in Macedonia. So they arrive in Philippi You see a leading city, verse 12, of the district of Macedonia. So Philippi evidently was a prominent city. Its economy flourished. It had a strong educational presence. There was a medical school there, a training place for physicians, a booming mining industry. It was a prominent city right along a corridor, a main thoroughfare, east and west across the Roman Empire, called the Anocdian Way. Right along that thoroughfare, a strategic city much like Boston. If the gospel took root in Philippi, it had the potential of impacting many people from many backgrounds and many different places. It was a strategic city, much like this region we are in here and now, Greater Boston. If the gospel takes root more and more in Greater Boston, it has the power to impact people from all over the world, from different backgrounds, different economic standings. It is a strategic place. How will the gospel take root in Greater Boston? By three megachurches of 10,000 people? No, friends, that will be insufficient. Greater Boston will be reached by thousands of local churches of 100 to 150 people deeply embedded in and invested in their community. Feet on the ground, hearts wrapped around the people, knowing them, understanding their needs, And wisely bringing the gospel to bear on each of those communities. That's the nature of New England. Pockets of people in close proximity, but very different communities. And so church plants springing up among those towns and places and neighborhoods and squares. That's how the gospel is reached through a movement of multiplication. Places like Cambridge radiating outward to Belmont. And then just a little bit outward to Bedford. And then to Bill It's just the spread Little lanterns of light, like I prayed this morning, flickering in the midst of darkness. This is how our region is reached. A movement of multiplication that we are a part of this morning, by God's grace. So as we consider the anatomy of a church plant, first we see God's gospel delivered. Look with me at the end of verse 10. Luke says we concluded, Luke is with them, he's a traveling companion of Paul and the team, we concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them, that is the Macedonians. So this is Paul's mission statement, to preach the gospel. And in the next three encounters with these different people, Paul and his team are executing the mission statement. They are declaring the gospel to the people that they meet. To Lydia, verses 11 through 15. Then to a servant girl, verses 16 through 18. And then finally to a Philippian jailer, verses 25 through 34. They are declaring the gospel to the people they encounter. But a key question is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? That word means good news. Friends, it's not good advice. It's good news. It's the announcement of something that has happened in history. It's not just good advice. It is good news of something that has physically, historically happened. It is the good news that God loves you and me beyond our comprehension. And he loved us enough in his mercy to send his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from sin and death because all of us, have sinned against God. As Dylan said this morning as he led us through the time of confession, all of us born into sin regularly rebel against God. All of us are therefore in need of a rescue, and that rescue comes from Jesus, the Redeemer. God has given us his son on a cross to die in our place, bearing the penalty we deserve, rising again, triumphing over sin and death. And anybody who believes in Christ is forgiven of all their sin. And they begin a relationship with God that lasts forever. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. It is the best news that will ever fall upon your ears and my ears. And it is the greatest need of every human being that has ever walked the earth. It's the greatest need of every person in Cambridge, in Belmont, and Bedford and beyond. It's the greatest need of every person in our state, in our country, and in the world. You see, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all are equal in our need of a Savior who hung on that cross. It is, we are common in our need of this great Savior. This is the good news. And the gospel must be the core message of any viable church. When the gospel ceased to be preached in a church... Death sets in. Trinity Church of Bedford: "Your viability will rise and fall on your proclamation of the gospel. And if you ever lose sight of it or lose grip of it, death will set into the church. I'll share a little secret about Scott. He really only has one message. He only has one sermon. It'll come in different forms from different genres in the Bible, different passages, but it's really only one message. God created. We sinned. Christ redeemed. We respond. That's the message, and it will come every Sunday faithfully to you through this man. God created. We sinned. Christ redeemed. We respond. That's his message. That's what will sustain you, keep you viable for the long haul. This gospel is sufficient to transform lives. And that's what we witness as the passage moves on. The anatomy of a church plant. First, God's gospel delivered. Second, God's grace displayed. How is it displayed? In the lives that are transformed by that gospel message. So Luke, the author here, records for us just a sampling of the lives that were transformed in Philippi. Three people, different backgrounds, different gender, different ages, different socioeconomic standings. It's a diverse lot that encounter the gospel and respond favorably to it. A wealthy female business owner named Lydia, an exploited servant girl, a prison warden about to take his own life. The gospel impacts each of them and brings about salvation. This is the scope of the gospel. It reaches across every age, ethnicity, economic standing, gender. It's a message for all people. And it's powerful to save. It brings life, hope, and restoration. That's what we see in these three lives. So with the time that we have left, I want to simply draw out the beauty of God's grace transforming lives as an encouragement and reminder of what he does through our lives as well as we declare the gospel. So Paul and his team, they enter Philippi. As was his custom in ministry, he seeks out Jews first because they have a platform of understanding the things of God. So he would often go into a synagogue. But evidently here in Philippi, there is no synagogue. It required a minimum of 10 Jewish men to form a quorum before you could have a synagogue. And so evidently there weren't a group of 10 there. So Paul then goes down by the river where he knows of a place of prayer where God-fearing Gentiles gathered. God-fearing, meaning they were sympathetic to Judaism without becoming converts to Judaism. So they were familiar with the scriptures, had heard them read, and that's what Paul does. He goes where he has a base of operation where he can preach Christ from the Old Testament because they have a base of understanding of it. Small group down by the river. though the group is small, God's presence and power is abundant. You don't need a massive gathering for God to show up and work in people's lives. So, core team of Trinity Bedford, there will be days where you're looking outside the door and wondering if this is the Sunday that no one shows up. I remember doing that at Avalon Dance Studio, cold days in February. Is this the Sunday? Is this the one where it's just me and Laura and the kids? God's grace and power is there among small groups too. Don't be discouraged by numbers. They they come and go, rise and fall. God's grace is working among small groups. He's in the small things. Verse 14, we meet a woman named Lydia. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So this woman is a wealthy, She had a successful business selling purple garments. Her home city was Thyatira, which was known for its expensive purple dyes that they would harvest this dye from shellfish in the Mediterranean and sell it to wealthy aristocrats and royalty because purple was the color of royalty. And so she had a business and evidently it was successful. She's described as a worshiper of God, meaning she was a God-fearing Gentile Familiar with the things of the Jews without becoming a convert to Judaism. So Paul speaks the word to Lydia and we witness God's grace miraculously working in Lydia's heart. Verse 14 said, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Friends, this is the grace of God on display. Who does what in evangelism? Don't get this mixed up. And I need to hear it myself as a pastor, as a preacher, as somebody who shares the gospel. Who does what in advantage? We share, we sow seeds, but God alone opens the heart. God alone germinates the seed. That's the miracle. And that's what he does. As Paul and company share, he miraculously opens up her heart. If you're here today and you are a Christian, you are so because God at some point opened your heart to the word, to the gospel. He did a miracle in you. Maybe as a child through your teaching of your mom and dad, maybe in a a youth group as a teen, maybe as a college student in, in campus ministry, maybe as an older adult, a friend shared with you over a cup of coffee. Whatever the means, someone shared and God miraculously opened up your heart. It's his miracle, it's his work. Maybe you're here and you're curious about Christianity, not entirely sure where you stand with Christ, but you're seeking. You are seeking because God is beginning to open your heart. Keep exploring, keep asking, keep coming, keep reading. And if you're here today, and frankly, you think Christianity is far-fetched, well, friend, God hasn't quite opened up your heart, but I want to encourage you as a friend and as a pastor, keep coming. Keep coming. He has the power to open your heart to his truth. He's ready and willing to do that. I remember as a 20-year-old kid, I had grown up learning about Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus. There's a difference. I knew the things of God, but I didn't know God personally. Struggling with all kinds of doubt about who I was as a young man and who Christ was. And I remember in a rocking chair at a retreat, simply praying, God, I don't know you, but I think I want to know you. Would you help me know you? Would you help me overcome my unbelief? God loves to hear the humble prayer of his people. We can't know him apart from his grace. Ask it, for faith is a gift that comes from the hand of God. God empowers our belief. Salvation is in the hands of the Lord. And that day God did a miracle in my heart and opened me up to the gospel. So if you're a skeptic, have you considered simply asking God to give you the gift of faith, to open your heart as he did Lydia's? Well, notice what happens as the passage continues. The Lord opens Lydia's heart and then Lydia opens her home. This is the chain reaction of grace. She has been transformed by God's grace and then becomes a vessel pouring it out to others. So what does she want to do? She wants to host Paul and company. She wants to extend gospel hospitality to them. Friends, graced people extend grace. A pitcher that has been poured into must be poured out. That's the chain reaction of grace. Lydia has been poured into by God, and notice she is pouring it out to others. She wants to extend gospel hospitality. Graced people extend grace. Sometime later, Paul and company go back to the place of prayer down by the river, and there they meet another person, a young girl, maybe 11 or 12 years old. She's a slave and she's inhabited by an evil spirit. So she's doubly oppressed, spiritually oppressed by some fortune-telling demon, and then oppressed by her owners as well, exploited for their gain. Luke tells us in verse 17, she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So notice this demon proclaims the truth about Paul and his team. And we see this throughout the Gospels. The demon have, demons have good theology. They just don't submit to that theology. They know who this, these people are. And they know the message that they're proclaiming. They just don't submit to that message. Well, this servant girl, exploited by her masters, keeps coming up, proclaiming who Paul and company are for many days. It's hindering and distracting Paul And we see in verse 14, he becomes greatly annoyed. A fuller translation would be he becomes greatly disturbed and grieved over the situation. So yes, he's irritated because he doesn't need this kind of PR from a demon-possessed girl. But he's grieved by the exploitation of her by her masters. And so he commands the spirit out. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And at once it came out. Paul extends grace to a young girl. Demonized and exploited by her masters. God's grace reaches into darkness and it binds up the brokenhearted, the people in the worst of conditions, dire straits. God's grace meets you there, meets people there. Throughout Old and New Testament, God is the one who draws near to the least of these. He's a defender of the widow, the orphan, the vulnerable. That's what you see here. God is tenderly drawing near, pouring out grace to the least of these in this passage. Do you believe that God's grace has power to meet you where you're at, no matter what you're caught up in, no matter what you've done, no matter your situation, And do you believe that God's grace has power to impact people in your life who are in dire straits? God does and he will, his power is limitless. Well, as Paul exercises this demon, he eliminates her owner's source of income and they are livid. These irate owners then drum up false charges against Paul. They incite a mob against him. Go to the local authorities, the magistrates. They're stripped of their clothes, and they're beaten with rods, and they're thrown into prison. And later that night, we see them encountering a third person. So first Lydia, then the servant girl. Finally, we see a Philippian jailer. As Paul and Silas are in prison, notice what they're doing. They're praying, and they're singing hymns to God in the midst of the worst of situations. Can you imagine sitting in shackles and fetters, praising the Lord and his grace and his goodness? That's what we see here. And notice the irony. The prisoners there who accompany Paul and Silas, yes, they are in captivity, but they are more captivated by the joy-filled singing of Paul and Silas. For when the earthquake breaks, they stay there. They're in physical captivity, but they're more captivated by the songs of grace coming from Paul and Silas that night. Paul and Silas view their captivity and their freedom, no matter their circumstance, as opportunities to witness to God. They believe that no matter their circumstances, God can use them. And I wonder if you believe that. Members of the core team, do you believe that God can use you no matter your circumstances? In weakness and in strength, God can and will use you. And friends, it's, all, it's oftentimes in our most fragile moments that we're most powerfully used by God. In our most fragile moments, we're most powerfully used by God. Why is that? Because in our fragile moments, we are emptied of our self-reliance and our false sense of strength And all we can do is lean on to the strength of God. When we are weak, then we are strong because his power is made perfect in weakness. And I could tell you story after story after story over the last six and a half years when I thought this thing's never gonna get off the ground, it's never gonna work. God works in the weakness. He works in fragility. He's there. The danger point is when you think you're strong, And in a good place, beware pride because it precedes the fall. The best place to be is weakness before the Lord. Then you're most readily used because it's his power working through you. As Paul and Silas sing hymns, suddenly the foundation of the ground shakes and every prison door flings open and every set of shackles breaks. Imagine if you're the prison warden Well, he wakes up. Evidently, he was sleeping on the job. He's about to take his own life with a sword because he knows that if any prisoner escapes, the way it works is it's on you. It's your life now. If you supervise prisoners who escape, it's you. So he's about to take his life. But Paul cries out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And then in this moment, the most wonderful picture of grace happens. This Philippian jailer calls for the lights and he falls before Paul and Silas, trembling, saying, What must I do to be saved? What's happened to this jailer? Friends, he has encountered the grace of God through the servants of God. What would cause these people to stay all here? Preserve my life in so doing. He is struck by the grace of God working through the servants of God. You see, the Philippian jailer knows he should have died. He comes to grip with his culpability. He knows he should have died. He knows there should have been an all-out jailbreak, people running everywhere for their freedom, but they all stayed. What could cause that? It's the God that Paul and Silas were singing to. He is melted down by the grace of God. This is a beautifully clear to the gospel. When you consider Jesus Christ, Do you realize it's you that should have died? Do you realize it's your culpability? You're the one who should have hung on the cross. You see, the Philippian jailer comes to understand it's him that should have died, but he was given grace. And so it is with the gospel. We see Christ hanging, bloodied and battered on the cross. That should have been us, but in grace it was Christ. And when that soaks into your Heart, that substitutionary work soaks into your heart, it changes everything. It changes everything. You cease striving to make yourself acceptable before God and you rest in the righteousness and perfection of Christ. It changes everything. Notice this man receives grace and then it extends that grace. He took Paul and Silas and washed their wounds. Just like Lydia extended grace upon receiving it, so does this man. He washes the bloodied backs of Paul and Silas after they'd been flogged. He washed their wounds and then he was baptized. The great early church pastor, John Chrysostom, said, The Philippian jailer washed their wounds and then he was washed in the waters of baptism. He washes their wounds and then he's washed in the waters of baptism, symbolizing the washing of his sin. The jailer was washed. And he washed the wounds of Paul and Silas. If you have received God's grace, you will extend God's grace. How do you know that you know Jesus? That's a good question. One of the ways is we see the grace of Jesus flowing out of us to other people, albeit imperfectly, but we should see fruits grace spilling over to other people. Graced people extend grace. Three people in Philippi transformed by the grace of God, a wealthy businesswoman, a spirit-plagued slave girl, and a prison warden about to take his own life. Three people, three conversations, three encounters, three salvations by the grace of God. This is the work of church planting, person by person, encounter by encounter. They won't all turn out like this, but person by person, everybody has a role. Everybody rubs shoulders with another person. God has strategically placed each one of us in a sphere of influence, in a context of a relationship. And this is what he has the power to do. As we declare the gospel, he displays his grace in response. This is the nucleus of the church in Philippi and Philippi we have the nucleus of the church in bedford here with us and in a few moments i'm going to invite you to come forward as we pray for you and encourage you and send you before i do that i want to invite scott to come forward and speak with us for a few moments as he shares ways that we can pray for them and in an update
1: about the church Thanks, brother. Um, Friends, it's pretty incredible to be here. Uh, Dane and I, Curtis and I, first started speaking, you know, over two years ago, and we committed to the church plant just a few weeks before COVID hit, and so it's incredible to just remember the Lord's faithfulness over these last two years, how the the roller coaster has already begun, and how he he has seen us up to this point, and... And, you know, now Now the really exciting work begins of, of living together as a church. It, it's kind of like we've been doing all this prep for the wedding day. And, uh, and we're really excited for April 3rd when we get to celebrate the launch of Trinity Church of Bedford. And then it's like we just, we do life together. And so this has been just such a joyous occasion of, of leading up to that. And, um, you know, Kate and I have really said from the beginning that we're just not, the, the kind of people that are going to parachute into a situation with no supporting church, no people locally. There's just no chance we would be here without hope and without Beacon. And so we firmly believe that churches plant churches. And we saw this in Acts 13 as the church at Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas. Uh, so from, from me, from us, from the Cope family, from the core team, uh, we just can't thank you Beacon enough for your your love and friendship uh, prayers and support and encouragement uh, from hanging out at splash pads to to going to parks together to praying together um doing prayer walks together i mean it's just incredible to consider uh, how the lord has used you guys to bless us and uh, and we wouldn't we wouldn't be here without you dane without the elders um without the congregation honestly